Uh, if you guys are with us for the first time, we've been going through a sermon series for a while, and today is going to be the last one that we're going to be going through from the series that we're currently in. Um, and so to open, or rather to close our sermon series, we're going to be looking at two passages. If you have your programs, so your passages are right in the back there. Or if you prefer to look at your Bible or your Bible app, no problem as well. We're actually only going to be looking at 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at, we're going to be skipping that Romans passage going to John 17. So 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 16, we'll look at those two verses, and then we'll go to the gospel. Of John chapter 17, verses 14 to 18. So, same author writing two different books. And verse 15 of 1 John, this is what uh, John writes. He says in verse 15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now let's skip over to the Gospel of John, chapter 17, and we'll be looking at verses 14 all the way to verse 18. So the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse, starting verse 14. This is Jesus speaking. This is in the middle of his prayer, and Jesus is, says in verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth, your word is truth, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. This is reading of God's word. So in 2005, the author David Foster Wallace, he gave one of the most famous grad graduation speeches at Kenyon College. Some of you might have heard of it. The title of his speech, it is called, This is Water. You can look up the speech online, you can read it, it's a great speech, um, and he gave it in front of all these collegians at the graduation ceremony. And David Foster Wallace, not a Christian, uh, far from it, but he went up to the podium and he gave this uh, masterful speech, and the speech began like this, and you might have heard this uh, parable before. He started with a parable, and the parable began where he said, there are two young fish swimming across the ocean, and as these two young fish were swimming across the ocean, there were these two older fish that were also swimming the other way. And as they passed each other, the older fish looked at the young fish, and they said, Morning, boys. How's the water? And they kept passing by. And as the two young fish kept swimming by, eventually one of them looks over at the other young fish, and he asks the question, What the hell is water? Now, Wallace, he opens with this parable because he's trying to explain something. I know that language is a little crude. That wasn't me. That was Wallace. But he's trying to explain and emphasize that this important point that a lot of graduate students, they, he wanted them to really know, which is that the most important realities in life are often the hardest things to see. Because the things that are shaping us most tend to be things that we take for granted, that we just presume to be true. And what he kind of says in this whole masterful speech is that everybody enters into life, real life, post-grad life, with the sense of certainty that this is the way life is. This is what normal life is. This is my plan. This is, we kind of feel like we kind of know what we're doing. But as you get older and you start experiencing consequences or pushback or reality, as maybe older people might say, you realize that there's a lot of delusion that we have and we didn't even realize it because we just presume this is how life goes. And so what Wallace does is that he gives a speech and uh, he goes on and on, just a very masterful explanation of what life is really like. And then he ends his speech by telling all the grad students, don't simply presume that you have it figured out. Don't presume what you experience in life is what normal is. 
because, he says, that's not necessarily normal. And so his conclusion is that as grad students, what you must do is every time you encounter something in life and it feels off, you must repeat to yourself, this is water, this is water, this is water. And that speech, this is water, it is the most read graduation speech on the internet. It it has gone viral, it is super popular, and the reason why I bring this up is because this is exactly what our sermon series has been about. We've been going through for the past five weeks this idea that all of us, we are being formed spiritually in a way that we don't even see, in a way that is unintentional. You just have to wake up and things are happening in your life that is shaping you. Nobody is neutral and those, some of us are being unintentionally formed, whereas others, we are being intentionally formed. And a lot of times, as we're being formed, it's either making us more human or it's making us less human. And as Christians, we said oftentimes it makes us less human. We are not being transformed but deformed spiritually. It's because we have what we call the three enemies of the soul. The first enemy we, we talked about for a few weeks, it's the, we believe in something called the devil, where there's a spiritual being and this devil, he attacks us with what's known as lies. And the lies are customized for you. The lies are very believable. And the whole goal is to take you away from God. These are lies that are out there. The second enemy of the soul is what we call the flesh. The flesh it is, appeals to the disordered desires of our bodies. And we are, what the flesh does is it makes us believe and turn to the strongest desires of our hearts, but not necessarily the deepest desires of our hearts. And that actually leads to us not being in a place of flourishing. Now today what we are going to do is we are going to end the series by looking at now the third enemy of the soul. The world. The world. And this is, uh, if the devil is the most mocked enemy, like there's no devil, and that's why we don't pay attention. Or if the, the flesh is the most confusing one, like what do you even mean by that? Uh, the world is probably the most neglected enemy, meaning we don't talk about the world often. And here's why I think that happens. is because... Uh, if you're like a millennial like me, or if you're a Gen Xer, if you're in that kind of life stage, you grew up in church with people just warning you about the world. Like old people going, watch out for the world, don't listen to that music, don't watch that movie. That's like the world, right? That youth preacher who kind of warns you in that way. And when you actually like read Harry Potter or you watch Radar our movies, you go, that wasn't that bad. And so we kind of felt like this lie that was being told us that was warning us about the world. And so for a lot of us here, we almost feel numb to the world. We almost feel like, what's the big deal about this idea of the world? So it's not even something we think about or talk about. And so in the previous generation, that was kind of like emphasized like crazy. Like, watch out for the world. I feel like today we've swung the other way. We've swung the other way where now nobody even considers what we are doing if it's of the world. That's, again, a category that's been neglected. So, for example, if you are working 60 to 80 hours a week and you're just trying to climb the corporate ladder that's there, you just think, this is the way it is. This is just the way it is. Or if you're always making poor choices at large events where you get, like, wasted or you do drugs, you just do things that are kind of crazy and someone goes, hey, are you okay? Should you be doing that? You explain, this is just young adult life. I just need to kind of vent. I need to have an outlet. That's just the way it is. Or if you make life-destructive choices that you go like, wow, these are actually not good decisions that you're making, and a friend points that out, why are you judging me? Isn't this what everybody's doing? In other words, all of us are living sometimes a certain way, and when someone points it out, our response is, what the hell is water? What's, What's water? What are you even talking about? We don't talk about the world. It's not really something in our vernacular today, even in the church. But the Bible, the Bible mentions it all the time. 
The Bible mentions the ways of the world and constantly warns us whether we are following after it or not. And so today what we're going to do is we want to look at two passages from the same author. And to end this series, we're going to talk about this, again, this last enemy, the world. Um, Usually I have two weeks to do it. Today, we're just ending it today. So I have one week to do it. So hopefully it does not feel too compact. But my goal is to come away with three things from these passages. And these are the three things to learn. Number one is understanding the world. What do we mean by the world? Number two, conforming to the world. Why is it so hard for us or so tempting for us to conform or be like the world? And number three, resisting the world. How can we as a church resist against the pull of the world? So understanding the world, conforming to the world, resisting against the world. So first, understanding the world. Recently, a couple came up to me and asked, uh, talked to me about Cancun because him and his wife were going to take a trip to Cancun. And my wife and I, we went to Cancun a few years ago. And they asked us how it was. And I told them, Cancun is great. The beaches are amazing. The hotel is awesome. But don't drink the, the, don't drink the water there. Just don't drink it. Oh, by the way, you should go to the city. The city's great because there's a lot of good food and so forth, but don't drink the water there. And the excursions. There's these things called excursions where you go scuba diving and there's like these parks that are there. Don't drink the water there. And the couple was like, why do you keep telling us not to drink the water there? And the reason why is because I drank the water there and I got jacked. Like, I got messed up. And the water came like in such a deceptive form. It came in a pina colada. I was like, oh, this is a pina colada. Like, it's not water. Dude, but they, how do you make pina coladas? With water. And so they, I drank it, and it just messed me up the entire Cancun trip. And that's why anytime someone asks me about that, I go, watch out. Don't drink the water in Mexico. It looks fine. It's not. It's pretty toxic. Uh, John is saying the same thing. Throughout John's letter in 1 John, the passage we just read, he always keeps warning about the world. In fact, in five chapters, he mentions the world 23 times. And the reason why is because John, he knows that even though the world looks nice, there is something toxic about it where if you just kind of take it unfiltered, something's going to be devastating, going to be discouraging or going to be hurtful to you. That's why, look, we get, again, he says in 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, when John mentions do not love the world, what does he mean? Uh, the Bible uses the same word in different ways. Uh, just like in our English language, we use words, the same word in often different ways. He uses the same thing. The Bible uses different word, the, word, the same word in different ways. So sometimes the world, the word cosmos in the Greek, it can refer to the physical planet like, you know, like trees or it can refer to like, things of the world like uh, chairs or so forth. Um, and so when Christians take it that way, oh, does John mean we can't listen to music? Does that mean we can't visit the Grand Canyon? I sh- that's, being, that's loving the world? Some Christians think that way. I don't think that's what John means. Sometimes the world, it means uh, people. John 3.16, God so loved the world. So does that mean that if John tells us not to love the world, we avoid non-Christians, we become monastery monks and nuns and so forth? And again, I don't think that's what John means. Here's the third way the, the word world is often defined. The world, according to John, he's actually referring to the operating system of the world, how the world works, the way the world thinks, the mentality of the world. This is what John is warning us against. And we know John is warning us against this because he defines what the world is in the next verse, in, or in, in that verse in verse 16. Notice in verse 16 what he says. He goes, for all that is in the world, and look what he describes, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, why does he mention desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride of life? Is he just kind of throwing out random descriptions out there? 
it's actually, if you, it's very fascinating. Some theologians look at this going, what John is doing is he is thinking of an earlier time in life where sin became rampant, there were just echoes of this, and this earlier moment, which comes from actually Genesis chapter 3. Remember in the garden where Adam and Eve, they're in the garden, and their serpent comes and tempts Eve with the fruit. And what's interesting is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, look what how it describes how the woman becomes tempted by sin. In verse 6 it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and we know that's kind of what Genesis says led to the brokenness of the world. Now notice those descriptions. Good for food, delight to the eyes, desire to make one wise. It's actually a parallel to what John is saying. John says lust of the flesh. Genesis says good for food. John says lust of the eye. Genesis says pleasing to the eye. John says pride of life. Genesis says desire for wisdom. In other words, what John is saying is, you know what the world is when I talk about the world? The world is the Garden of Eden gone crazy. The world is the Garden of Eden broken, where Eden at that moment became all about rebelling against God and a redefinition of good and evil. In other words, what the world is, is the sin of Adam and Eve gone viral. It's where that has gone amok. That is what the world is. It's a society distorted by sin, and not only distorted by sin, but this distortion is normal. It's seen as the way things are. This is life. This is the way it is. Boys will be boys. That's just kind of the way we describe things. Or like what one author, his name is Theo Hobson, he says it like this, quote, this is the world. What was universally condemned, it is now celebrated. What was universally celebrated, it is now condemned. Those who refuse to celebrate are condemned. The world is a celebration of the opposite of God. Rebelling against God, redefinition of God, of good and evil, and everyone celebrates it. Let me bring this home to kind of explain exactly what this looks like. I'm going to tell a story about my college days, so don't judge me. This was me back in college. But back in college, when I went to UC Irvine, I remember like a lot of us, we meet a lot of our friends in the dorms, freshman year, and five of us said, hey, let's live in an apartment together. And so we decided, yeah, let's do it. And we moved into an apartment, and like a lot of college students, when you first move into an apartment, there's not much furniture, right? Like, how do you go about buying furniture? And so we noticed our apartment was super empty, and we, four of us, we went out to eat late at night, and we ate in one of those, like, outdoors areas with, like, those metal chairs and metal tables that are just kind of outside where you could dine, right? And so the four of us, we were eating, and we're like, you know what we need? We need, like, we have a patio in our apartment. We need furniture there, like, kind of like this, like these outdoor chairs. Like, we need, like, something like this so we could hang out. And it should be just like this. Wait a minute. These chairs are nice. And we were looking at these chairs, and we looked around. It was nighttime. Nobody was there. And one of my roommates had a truck. We're like, why don't we just take these chairs? So what we did is we literally grabbed five of these metal chairs. We put it in the truck. We grabbed the table, the metal table. We put it in the truck, and we took it to our apartment. We went to the patio. We laid it all out. We're like, look at our patio. Look at our patio. This is nice. All of us are here, and it was free, even better. So we're just relaxing, hanging out there, super happy. But all of a sudden, our fifth roommate came home, our fifth roommate. And he, like every other group of people, he was the nice one. There's always that nice one, right? 
And when he came home, he saw us in these outdoor patio tables. He was like, whoa, where'd you get this? And why does it look so familiar? <laughs> like, I feel like I've seen this patio before. And we told him the whole story. We're like, you know, we went to this area and, you know, there was, there was nobody watching. So we just took it and so forth. And after we shared, he wasn't excited with us. He had like this really concerned look on his face. And he's like, ooh, guys, I don't think this is right. I don't think we should do this. I think we should take it back. And when he said that, you would think like we would be so convicted and rebuked, but we weren't. We were mad. We were like, what's wrong with you? Why are you such a prude? Like, why, why are you so sensitive? Are you kidding? You know how much work we had to do to carry these chairs into the patio? You know how much money we saved all of us? You are so unappreciative. And looking at that situation, like, that's kind of what happened. Like, this thing that I look back on now, I'm like, oh my gosh, we were criminals. Like, we committed petty theft. And when this person pointed out to us, we didn't get rebuked, we just condemned them. And in fact, not just condemned them, he transformed where he enjoyed the patio with us and he enjoyed it and so forth. We're like, what is going on here? And I realized, like, oh, wow, this is a great example of how the world works. We have a wrong idea, which is, hey, let's, let's have a patio area. It appealed to our desire, which is, oh, we want something nice and cheap. And it was normalized by society, which in this case was us. And anybody who went against it, we thought, what's wrong with you? You're weird. It's like this twisted version of what normal is. And yet, this is where we see everywhere. This is the Bible's argument of how the world operates. Things that we presume to be true because it is normalized, and everyone's doing it, and yet something kind of is off about it. Let me give a couple of modern examples at a macro level. For example, your time, your busyness. You know the common mantra that I hear from everybody post-college? I'm busy. I am so busy. I have no time, and this is just the way it is. This is life. Nobody rebukes you if you're too busy. Nobody goes, hey, that's kind of off. All of us just say, I'm busy too. We're all busy. In fact, we celebrate busyness as being productive, being alpha, being on top of things. But do you know that the way we're busy today, it's really weird, right? It's really weird. Uh, this author named Joseph Henrik, I, I keep reading, mentioning his book called The Weirdest People in the World. And he says, this idea of go, 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 it's such a modern phenomenon that we don't realize it's modern because it's so normalized. Because think about it, back in the day, most of human history, about 1,300 years, most people did not gauge time based on hours. They literally looked at the sun going, oh, it's morning, gotta go fishing. They go fishing, they do their thing, and what happens in the midst of fishing, someone comes, hey, brother, and they just talk to each other. They're not even, they're just like chilling, they're just talking, going at their own pace, catching their own fish. It's nighttime, and they go home. Sunrise, sunset. That's how you gauge time back in the day. Now, granted, in a situation like that, you don't get much fish, less productivity in a, in a situation like that. But at the same time, you have an openness to just events happening. You're just chill, just pacing. When someone comes and interrupts you, you just talk to them. Relationships get built. That's how most of the world worked for about 1,300 years. Everything changed in 1370. You know what changed history in 1370? The clock the modern clock. 
a mechanical clock that got erected, and everyone started getting clocks in their homes, clocks in their cities, watches, and now what do we do? Time is not chill anymore. Time is now measured. We measure our time all the time. I have no time. I have an appointment at two, this arbitrary moment of the day that this Western world has created. I have to hurry. I must maximize my time. I must be productive. I must be efficient. And when we live in a world like that, we look at someone like Steve Jobs and go, that guy's a genius. You know why? Because he's so efficient with his time. He wears the same clothes every day. Save more time. It's all about saving time. And that's why if you go on like a mission trip and you go to a third world country, if if a church event starts at 12 p.m., it don't start to 2 p.m. They don't care about that. Because in third world countries, they're just like, whatever, sunrise, sunset, all good. Now, on the one hand, when we look at that as Westerners, we think, oh, wow, you know, of course it's better to have clocks. Of course it's better to do this because we're more productive. You have more production in that way. But is it more human? Is it more human? Why are we so depressed? Why are we so lonely? And why are those poor countries, why are they so happy? Again, I'm not saying get rid of your clocks, but we just presume this to be true, even though what is it doing to us? How is it something that's being normalized? And this is something celebrated in our culture, to be busy. Or here's another one. This one gets a little bit more sensitive, sex. Everyone's doing it. In fact, it's a good way to know if your partner is marriageable, because sex is important. And to be a virgin, that's ridiculous. You don't want to be the 4 year old virgin. We have movies about that. Like, what is going on there? And yet, it is without, this is uh, like not disputed. It is undisputed. There's a book called Premarital Sex in America, which is, this is a social experiment what America is doing. The idea that you could separate sex from marriage. This happened since the 1960s where that became a norm. And without question, this is non-Christian studies, social studies, without question, multiple sex partners leads to the decline of mental health. Without question, and the most vulnerable to this are women. Without question, women with multiple sexual partners, they found there's a higher level of sadness, a higher level of depression, a higher level of drug use, and a higher level of suicide. And yet, we normalize this. We normalize, of course, you have sex before you, you, before you get married to one another. It's just normal. In fact, it's celebrated. It's freedom. It's sexual freedom. But are we being more human? Are we being more human? Here's a last example, and this one's trigger warning, but uh, abortion, abortion. The world sees it as a basic human right. We celebrate it in marches, and anyone who dares opposes it, especially a, a guy like me, oh, you're in big trouble. You're in big trouble. And again, it's a complicated topic, a lot of nuances, Christians simplify it way too much, can't get into the details, but quick question about this. Do you know the main percentage of babies who get aborted? The main population of babies that get aborted. Without fail, without doubt, those with Down syndrome. It's those with Down syndrome. 67% of the babies who are diagnosed with Down syndrome, the womb, they are aborted. 67%. In Denmark, it is 98% are aborted. And in Iceland, 100%. There are no Down syndrome babies in Iceland. One Iceland doctor said, quote, we have basically eradicated Down syndrome from our society, which is celebrated. But basically what the doctor's saying is we've killed all the babies with Down syndrome. We've removed them. And the problem with that is like, but 
On the one hand, that sounds good. We got rid of Down syndrome. On the other hand, like, wait, there's a lot of people with Down syndrome who they're living beautiful lives. We see them. We, they're, they're there. Have you ever seen the Peanut Butter Falcon movie? Beautiful life about a person with Down syndrome. And yet, this is something that is normalized. This is something that the world says this is a basic human right. But the question again is, is this making us more human? See, what we often presume as just the way it is, this is just the way it is. Isn't this normal? David Foster Wallace would say, this is water. This is water. You just don't see it. Or the Apostle John would say, this is the world. This is the world. And so the question for us is, do you recognize this? Do you recognize the world works this way? We don't reject everything from the world. There's goodness in the world. We don't reject people in the world. But we recognize that oftentimes things that are normalized and socially acceptable, it can be so contrary to what God actually says. Do we see what God actually has to say about these things? But even if you're a Christian and you go, I know this, I should stand against the world, it's so hard. It's so hard to resist the pull of the world, the values of the world. Why is this the case? And at least to the second point, conforming to the world. Now, Jesus' followers, when they warn about the world, all they're doing is repeating what Jesus says. Jesus constantly warns people about the world. His followers, watch out for the world, watch out for the world. And never more than in John 17. In the Gospel of John, the passage we read, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus is praying for his disciples here. And he's saying that, hey, you're going to be in the world. You're going to be struggling in the world. But he prays for something. And what Jesus prays for is he's praying that not that they're going to be protected from persecution. Because persecution, that actually helps Jesus, the, the Jesus movement. The more persecuted the faith is in a country, it tends to actually flourish, which is really interesting about Christianity. But the real danger isn't persecution, it's conformity. It's when the faith becomes like the world, that's something that actually hurts the Jesus movement, and that's something that Christians are always vulnerable to, especially today, especially here in America. Philip Reif, he is a 20th century sociologist, and he looks at the Western world, and he goes, you know, when you look at the history of the Western world, you could break it down into three stages. There are three stages of maturation of the world. Stage number one is pre-Christian culture. The pre-Christian culture. Meaning that this is the world before Christianity became a thing. This is Rome before the gospel. This is Ireland before St. Patrick's Day. This is Korea before the Presbyterians came. This is China before the Baptist missionaries came. This is a time where there was no exposure to Christianity, a lot of superstition. Uh, this is what a lot of you train for for summer missions. You try to go in countries where the Christian faith is not exposed. That is pre-Christian culture. Now, the second type of culture is once the gospel gets exposed, what he says is you have what's called a Christianized culture, which is pretty much like that Jesus, he's acceptable in this country where this is Rome with Constantine, this is medieval Europe, this is the United States to the 1950s, and pretty much what this means is that Jesus and Christianity is a good thing. It's seen as a moral thing. Not everyone is Christian, but it's seen as like, yeah, this is admirable. You are a moral person if you're a Christian. And then there is a third phase, which Reef calls the, the post-Christian culture. This is modern Europe, this is Canada, this is the United States right now. This is when you understand the Christian values of life. You even embrace the Christian values, but you don't like Christianity. You like what one author says, the kingdom, you don't like the king. 
And that's kind of what he says. This is the, the way you could break it down right now. Now, what's really interesting about this is Reef says, if you are in a Christianized culture, number two, and you go to a pre-Christian culture, so next slide, if you are, let's say, a traveler in, in like the United States, and you go to Africa, this is back in the 50s, the danger of a situation like that is you, as an American missionary, you might colonize that country in a way you shouldn't. And we've seen stories like that, right, where I'm a Christian missionary, want to bring Jesus to this place who's never heard of Jesus, but then Africa just turns white. It becomes where like, all their customs are gone. That's colonization. Big problem, right? Big problem. So that's one danger that you're in if you come from number two to number one. Now, here's the interesting thing that Reef says, though. Next slide. If you come, though, from a Christianized culture to a post-Christian culture, the danger is not that you're going to colonize that area, but that area is going to colonize you. Let me give you an example. If you had a missionary from China, and let's say the gospel is real in China, and they go, I want to bring the gospel to the places that don't have it. I want to come to the OC. And this Chinese missionary came to the OC, bought an apartment, and he's like, I want to make disciples here. What is more likely to happen in our context? That people who encounter them, there's going to be revival, go, I didn't know Jesus, and this huge revival happens? Or is more likely that Chinese missionary will look like us? He comes like us. Just enjoy, wants to just enjoy life here. What Reef says is, you are never more vulnerable to just let go of your faith than when you come from a Christianized world to a post-Christian world. And the reason why is because the threat is not atheism. The threat is syncretism. Atheism, no God. I don't believe in him. Syncretism is God's cool, but I like other stuff too. Jesus is something. He's not everything. Jesus matters, but he's not my all. Jesus, I consider him, but he's not something that influences my decisions in real life. That's kind of the danger that you run into, that stage number three. And that's something that all of us feel threatened by that all of us are vulnerable to. You are vulnerable to be colonized, in other words, by the world. And if the, this is why in this context as in the OC, it's so hard because we don't even realize, are you being colonized in your faith at all? Do you recognize that there's a colonization that could take place? And if you don't know how that happens, here's a, a little, I guess, phrase that you could remember. The areas of your life that are often most colonized by the world are the areas of your life where your faith has been most compromised. Most of us will never just abandon our faith. But there are areas of our life that are being colonized, and it's often the times, the places, that a lot of compromise is taking place, where God's voice is least influential, where he is least present in this area of life. And oftentimes this happens when you enter into a new phase in life. Marriage, buying a house, having kids, graduate college, that's when you are most vulnerable to being colonized without even knowing it because compromises are happening because you're just trying to survive. Let me give you an example of how this works out for my life. When I graduated college, key moment for me, because when I graduated college, I was looking for a job. And you just, you know, you feel that pressure, like I need to find like a career, a stable job. And I remember I approached it like a missionary. I was like, Lord, please give me a job. I, was, I wanted to be an educator at the time. Let me find a teaching job for your glory, for your glory. I just want to really help the kids for your glory. I want to love my neighbor for your glory. I will tithe my salary for your glory. Just give me a job. That was like my prayer. 
That was my prayer request. And I remember when I actually got the job, it was awesome. I was like, thank God, I'm going to use it to glorify you. I'm going to use it to bless other people. But what was really interesting is I went into the education world, and I, I found nobody thought like that. Not a single person that I knew was like, I'm doing this for the glory of God. Like, nobody. There are two ways educators thought in my context. I'm just getting by, I just want to get things done, or I want to be the best. Those are the two types of people I met. And so when I saw that that was the, the, the education world, I chose the I want to be the best route. I just surrounded myself with those types of educators. And so what I did is to be the best, I have to be the best, like have the best lesson plans. I want to be the guy where the students walk out going, take Mr. Huang's class. He's the one who could actually bring like the best lessons. I want to be the guy where I create like these systems of like grading and other teachers go like, oh, did you hear about that system? And I want to be like the innovator. That was kind of my goal. So I got in the zone. I was in the zone in my profession where I just devoted so much of my life into being the best teacher. And what happened was I got so zoned in that I was like, oh, today's Sunday. I have a lot of work to do. I am a Christian. And I should go to church because that's what Christians do. But I think today I'll just stay home. And so I'd stay home. I just like, I just work because I had things to do. Or if I got a little guilty, like, okay, I'll go to church. But right when the final song happens, I'm gone because I got papers to grade. That was my life for like six months. That first six months of teaching, I was just kind of focusing on teaching and letting go of things that I would have never had let go of before. I got a wake-up call about that six-month time because you know what happened? I found myself just lesson planning going, I hate my life. Like, I hate my life. Number one, I'm not the best teacher. Far from it. Number two, these lesson plans are not that much better. <laughs> like, they're not that much better after devoting a few more hours into it. And number three, I was like, wow, like my, my career, it, it's not just a career, it became like my identity. Like I, my up and down was based upon how my career was going. And I found myself again being like, wow, I never would have compromised these things heading into it. What happened? And looking back, it's like, oh, I got colonized. This is water. This is water, and I just didn't see it. And so at that time, I had to take a stand. Uh, just to kind of bring a, a bow to that, what happened was I said, no matter what, I'm still going to work hard, so I'm going to be a great teacher. I'm never compromising Sundays. Even the lesson plan's not good, it's just not good. I'm not compromising my soul for that. And that's the way I lived the rest of the time when I was an educator. And even though it was uh, kind of challenging because I want to do more, so much more peace. So much more peace. Now I'm, a, now, uh, I'm older, uh, I don't care about my career as much, I'm a parent, and so when you become a parent, your career is like, whatever. Now you're worried about your kids. And I have entered into a new zone, into a new zone of, of, of parenting. And like a lot of parents, when my wife got pregnant with our first son, I was just praying all the time, going, Lord, would you bless this baby? Not just with health, not just with success, but may he know you. And, you know, I just kind of give that pastor prayer and just, like, hope that they, he knows Jesus. And it's really interesting. Um, in the beginning, it was like raising up to be like this hardcore Christian. But about like year, like six months into like Judah being born, my son, I noticed like, huh, he's not developing the way I read in the books. Okay, let me read more books about that. Or I noticed that, huh, as I watched my son, like, is he, uh, is he socially acceptable? Do the babies like him? Like, what's going on? And so I tried to like, you know, help him with that. Or then like, I, if, when he's older, like, is he, is he reading at the level he should be reading? Oh my gosh. And so, you know, I try to get into that and I got into like sucked into this world of like parenting, this OC world of like, I want my child to be the most athletic, socially acceptable, smartest kid that he could be. 
that he could be. Okay, I don't, he doesn't be better than anybody, but that was kind of like the goal. And I kept devoting myself into that mentality where, but the wake-up call happened a few months ago, actually, where I read a book about parenting. And it was the first Christian book about parenting I read in a long time. And the, parent, the book pretty much in the first chapter said, you know what the most important thing is, right, as a parent, right? Does your child know Jesus? Does your child know Jesus? Do you care about that? And are you doing anything about that? That's pretty much what the book was saying. And I realized, oh, wow, I got so rebuked. I mean, I'm a pastor. And I talk about Jesus all the time, just not at home. Because my main focus for my son was to be socially acceptable, athletic, developed, emotionally healthy. But his spiritual life was just kind of in the back burner. Our education department, oh, you guys take care of that. But it's like, whoa, as a parent, what happened? I realized I was not investing in my son's spiritual life at all. And I realized, like, wow, my son, he learned more about basketball and the MCU than me, from me, than, than Jesus. Like, he knows Marvel really well, but how much does he know about Jesus from me? And I realized nobody questions this. Nobody questioned as an educator what I was doing, because this is normal. Nobody questions as a parent what I'm doing, because this is normal. This is water. This is water. This is the world. And I realized, like, wow, it's so easy to be colonized because it seems like everyone's doing the same thing. And here's the question. Do you know how you've been colonized? Most likely, it's the areas of your life where you've most compromised, where Jesus' presence is least there. And oftentimes, it's the new stages of life because you're trying to just get a handle of that stage of life you're in. New marriage, again, new career, new home. But does your marriage look like just like everybody else's marriage in the world? Does your work look like just like everybody else? Is your home just like everybody else? Again, you can measure this by how, much, how far have you strayed from that earlier conviction you had into entering this stage? It's hard. It's really hard because it's so normal. And so in this context, where it's so normal, where everyone's asking, what is water? I don't know what that is. How do we resist? How do we fight back against this? And that leads to the last point, resisting the world. How do we resist against this third enemy of the soul? The first enemy, the devil, you have to resist to a truth. He tells you lies, you need truth, you need God's word. The second enemy of soul is the flesh. The flesh wants you to do things you don't, that you want to do, but it's not really your deepest desires. You need the spirit of God. You need the spirit of God to battle against the flesh. But this third one, the world, when everybody is saying the same thing, this is the way it is, this is the way it is, how do you battle that enemy? It's very simple, and yet something that's much needed again. You need God's church. You need a community. You need a community that has a new normal, that sees the world differently in the way God sees it. Through the church, when it's meaningful, you resist the pull of the world, where the world says, this is just how life is. But when the church gathers together, it's like, wait, is this how life goes? Because we see water. And this isn't the way life is supposed to work. But here is the key. The church cannot simply be any type of community. It cannot just be a group of people who want to hang out, a group of people who play church on Sundays, but everything else is normal. This church must be a counter-cultural community whose values are different than the rest of the world. That's why in John chapter 17, again, Jesus talks about how he doesn't just send them into the world, but what does he say in verse 17? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus envisions people who are sanctified, meaning set apart, different than the world. 
And what happens is when you have a group of people who are not just scattered, but they are set apart into the world, it battles against the normalization of what we see out in the world, where instead of lies being normalized, truth is being anchored. Now, how as a church can we do this? How can we be that type of church that's countercultural? Um, Sundays are important. Let me just get that out of the way. To gather on Sundays, it's very important. You are declaring that, hey, this is the one thing I'm doing differently that no one else besides a Christian would do. That is very important. And Sundays tend to re-anchor yourself in truth. You see other people going, I'm not crazy, but we are all worshiping the same king together. Sunday gatherings are the most significant gatherings of the church. And while the church, that is very important, it's never less than that. It's so much more. The church is so much more. How can the church be really countercultural where it stands against the world? Let me just introduce two things for us and we'll close our time. Number one is this. The community of the church, it must have deep convictions. This must be a gathering where the convictions of the Lord are deep. I like what John Tyson says where he says, the church has to almost function like this beautiful resistance, as he calls it. A beautiful resistance against the world and its vision apart from God. It must stand for a vision of what life with God looks like. So again, the church can't just hang out together. But the church must shine forth as a city on a hill in a dark world. They must live like exiles in Babylon. Like the confessing church under the Third Reich. Like the house churches in Mao, China. That's the only way the church is going to resist against the temptation of the world. And here's how we do it. We must grow conviction in key areas of our lives that are usually dominated by compromise. Normally, our lives are filled with compromises, and it's just easier to compromise what we once had conviction for, but we must regain conviction in those areas of our lives. And how are we going to do this as a church? Our next sermon series is going to be all about that, the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to go through the Sermon on the Mount. It's all about what does a community need to be convicted by to stand out as a city on a hill. And that's kind of our goal is we want to be a community that doesn't just care for, just scatter together, but the convictions are deep, are common, and it stands out that makes us shine forth. So the community must have deep convictions to be countercultural, and we're going to go through all the next, whoever many weeks we're going to go through that for. But here's the second thing that the church needs, and we'll end with this one. We, a community must not be, have deep convictions, but we also must be deeply committed to loving. Deeply committed to love. If we only have convictions for Jesus, but we don't love each other, the church will not shine forth. But if you want to see something that the world doesn't really see that counters how the world works, the church must be deeply committed to loving one another. And we don't realize how rare this is until you kind of go through life and you go, wow, this is actually hard to find. And let me give a final example for that. There's an article going around that is like one of the best articles I've ever read about uh, relationships. It's uh, by an NBA sports writer. Jonathan uh, Charks, I think that's who pronounced his last name. If you haven't read it, he's a writer of The Ringer. Some of you might have read it, but it was such an interesting article because he's an MBA writer, he's a Christian, but what happened was about two years ago, he got diagnosed with cancer. And he's like 30s, in his 30s or so. And so when he got diagnosed with cancer, he wrote this article, and he pretty much was recounting what cancer is like right now. And in his article, he said, you know, as I've been going through chemo and so forth, it reminds me of my dad. Because his dad actually was sick too. He remembers his dad having, suffering from Parkinson's disease. And he brought up how when his dad first got Parkinson's disease, and his dad was young too, he was around John, uh, Jonathan Chark's age, when his dad got Parkinson's disease, 
uh, what happened was um, people would come over and give him well wishes. Like all his friends be like, hey, I'm there for you. They bring him meals. They send them cards and so forth. But then Charks realized that at one point, at one point as his father got more sick and he couldn't really be the type of friend that the friends liked in the first place, people stopped visiting. They stopped visiting. And the reason why is because, you know, people just, we have, we're busy. We have lives of our own. We have kids. We have our own thing to do. And what was really sad was he was like, and I, he remembered that the only people who ended up visiting his father's life for the last few years of his life was uh, the nurses. It was just health coworkers, and that's it. And the reason, and Jarks was like kind of like pondering this. He's like, wow, my father lived a very lonely life at the end because Americans, they tend to prioritize their career first. It's all about career. We move around a lot, so you can't really plant deeply rooted relationships. And he realized this is what his parents did. And his parents, they had friends. They had friends, but they didn't have a community, one that was like devoted to them. And I love what Chark says where he says about this idea of friendship. He says, quote, the lie that society tells us is that our friends can be our family. That's the premise of TV shows like Friends, Seinfeld, and How I Met Your Mother. We can all leave our hometowns behind and have exciting adventures in the big city with the people that we met. And those people will love us and take care of us and be there for us. But he goes on. But life is actually more like what happened to the actual actors on Friends. Their TV reunion was the first time all six had been together in years. They still cared about each other to a degree, but they had grown apart. They were living in different cities and working different jobs and had a million different things happen to them that, didn't, that they didn't share as a group. It couldn't be the same as it was when they were all single and working on the same TV set. And if you don't believe what he's saying here, just ask any parent. Ask any parent in this room. Just ask your parents. Who do your parents hang out with? And especially, ask, look at your parents when they get sick. Who's there for them? Who's caring for them? Now, Charks, as he was thinking about this, he's like, I am in the same position as my father, but there's one big difference for him. The big difference is he went to this church, and they had this thing called life groups there. And he was like, this group was really weird. Like, he, he, got, he went there, and he, and he didn't know anybody. They were just, like, awkwardly eating snacks at the table. And he sat down and just ate with them, and it wasn't that great of a meeting. Like, he was just like, that was weird. But he just kept going back. Just kept going back, kept going back. And he said something happened where in the midst of that constancy, that scheduled meeting that was always there, and those moments of vulnerability, where he says now that he's sick and he has needs for people to take care of him, he describes, I can't imagine a life without this group. And I like the way he puts it, quote, the last quote, he, quite, he quotes, I can't imagine not being in a life group at this point. People talk a lot about medical insurance and life insurance when he gets sick, but relational insurance is far more important. I didn't need my dad's money, but I could have used some of his friends. And this is what the church could be. This is what the church is meant to be. A community that's so countercultural, not just because of our convictions, we're devoted to each other. Not so long as you're a friend to me, but because you're just part of this church, and we want to serve you. I know that's not easy. I know that sometimes we don't even experience that at church, but that's how the church stands out as a city on the hill. That's how the church could counter what the world has to offer. But we embrace love as something that we practice together. And so quick question before we close. <laughs> Do you not only have a church, but would you say you're part of a community? Do you have a community that's together where they're convicted by the same things and they care for one another? Church is not easy to invest in. Sometimes it's hard. I said this last week. Nobody wants to go to a community group. Nobody wants to drive a Sunday sometimes. Career, hobbies, our friends, they seem far more important. And yet, I promise you, that community is what helps you see water. 
Community is what helps you get formed in the ways that you need to be formed, especially when times get tough. And this is what the church stands for in contrast to the world. And so as we close this series, let's remember we are all being unintentionally formed right now. All of us are being formed, either unintentionally, but the call for us is to be formed intentionally. And so before we respond in time of prayer, I actually want to invite the praise team up, and uh, we're going to actually, if we can, I'm going to pray for us, and we'll have a time of where we could individually uh, respond to not just today, but even the whole series, and we're also going to take the Lord's Supper together. And so let me pray for us on our behalf, and then we have a moment of reflection and response. Let's pray.